Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're going to continue with our series today, Christmas in the First Testament. So turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7 and 53, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Christmas in Isaiah. If you don't know it, Isaiah is the longest book in the First Testament that is after the Psalms. I always feel I have to put a caveat around the Psalms because technically the Psalms are not one book but a collection of 150 songs of praise and lament and wisdom and complaints and dealings with God. This is simply Israel's hymnal and you know when we have wisdom we make it our hymnal today as well. But Isaiah is one book and a very long one at that. It has 66 long chapters, and what's more, the man who wrote the book had a very lengthy career. He prophesied from the year 739 BC all the way to 685, which covers the span of 54 years. He prophesied during the reign of five kings of Judah, King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, finally Manasseh, that great wicked king during whose reign Isaiah most likely died. I find it fascinating that when Isaiah mentioned the kings under which he served, he leaves Manasseh off the list. The Bible doesn't tell us how he died, but later Jewish tradition says Isaiah died as a martyr being ordered to be sawn into by Manasseh himself. So what does that tell you? Well, it should tell you that Isaiah was a man who said those words which the Lord spoke to him, but he said them regardless of the response whether he was praised as in the days of Hezekiah or whether he was hunted down as was true of Manasseh, Isaiah's message was constant. He was a man who could be counted on to tell the truth. Now, the New Testament quotes the Psalms more often than any other book, but after that, Isaiah is quoted most often, at least 55 times. But there are also more allusions to his work as well. And just in case you're wondering, the next book quoted most often, well, that's the book of Deuteronomy. Isaiah is a book that the writers of the New Testament poured over again and again. When the New Testament writers tried to understand Jesus, they kept going back to Isaiah, and from the lengthy pages of the book he left behind, well, the New Testament writers saw insights into the meaning of the life of Christ. You know, it seems proper then, if we are to understand Christmas at all, we should just like the New Testament writers did, we should go to Isaiah. And that shouldn't surprise you. If you've heard even a small amount of Christmas sermons in your life, I'm going to guess that you heard quotes from the book of Isaiah. To us a child is born, we say at Christmas, and that's from Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, we say. That's also from Isaiah. But let's start at the beginning. Who was Isaiah? You know, I guess the easiest answer is the one he gives. He says he was the son of Amos. You know, there's a rabbinic tradition that says that Amos was the brother of King Amaziah, who was one of the kings of Judah. You know, that fact alone might help us to understand why Isaiah had such a keen interest in which man, that is, which offspring of King David would become the Messiah. Isaiah is fascinated to search out anything God gave him about the sure coming of that man who would sit on David's throne and restore the earth and rescue it from the ravages of sin. Isaiah is the reason Jesus could so confidently say to the Pharisees what he did in John 5, 39. 
You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Indeed, Isaiah spent a lifetime bearing witness of the Christ. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. Now, of course, that kind of a name comes with an implication. And the implication is we need someone to save us. And we're lost. We're in darkness. And you don't have to read in Isaiah very long to hear exactly what he's talking about. So let's read from the very first of the 66 chapters. Indeed, let's read from after the introduction in verse 1, verses 2 to 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Or go down a few verses to verses 21 to 23 and hear Isaiah's description of what has become of the city of Jerusalem in his day. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. You know, a beautiful, righteous city, the one David captured and made not just the seat of his kingdom, but the place where the temple dwelt and and the centerpiece of God's glory on earth. That city, says Isaiah, has now become a whore filled with theft and murder. Oh, how we need a savior. See, when you read Isaiah carefully, you'll be introduced to a man who doesn't see the world through rose-colored glasses. Some who read Isaiah might wonder if he's overly dark, too ready to see the evil side of life. But even if that's what you think, you won't find Isaiah to be a pessimist. After all, his name does mean the Lord saves. And furthermore, you'll also notice that after reading this scathing denunciation that makes up the first chapter of Isaiah, there follows one of the most hopeful chapters in the entire Bible. Isaiah chapter 2 starts out by saying, in the latter days, or, you know, as we like to put it, in the end of the present age, and at the beginning of the new one. Well, says Isaiah, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, and he's speaking about the temple mount in Jerusalem. This mountain, says Isaiah, will become the most important piece of real estate the earth has ever known. He says that all the nations on the earth will stream to it, and they'll come saying, come, let us go to the house of the Lord so that the Lord himself will teach us his ways. The world will one day come to this city of God, and they will come with but one objective, to be taught the ways of God so that all of their national life will be at God's direction. Hope you're getting a picture. Isaiah is not negative, nor is he a pessimist, but he is a realist, while in our day, so many of us are not. The rose-colored picture that many entertain today is that human beings are basically good, but we sometimes make mistakes. And we continue to say it, even though psychologists tell us that every human being lies dozens and dozens of times every single day. And furthermore, we spill out hateful gossip against each other. We slice others apart with our tongues. 
We clamor with each other for the advantages that we might gain. We're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and pride. Isaiah saw us, the fallen race of Adam, in exactly the way that God sees us. And he knew that human beings are so desperately in need of a Savior who would love us and rescue us from the evil that lies within and the evil that spills out from us to create evil in our world. We need a Savior. Isaiah means the Lord saves. Now, that already relates to the wonderful story of Christmas. As the angel told the shepherds, and that's recorded in Luke 2, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Yes, a Savior. Now, as I've said, Isaiah is a long book. It's 66 chapters long. It's not possible in one message to even give a broad overview of the book, but for our purposes today, I want to lay out five of Isaiah's visions of the coming of the Messiah. I'm going to start with the first of them. Isaiah tells us that at the birth of the Messiah, this will be a sign to the human race that God does intend to save us. And before I read Isaiah 7:14, let me paint a very quick picture of the context. Two nations were about to attack Jerusalem, and the king, King Ahaz, is shaken as a leaf is shaken in the wind. Isaiah approaches the king and says, God is determined that this attack is not going to be successful. But you, King Ahaz, need to find faith in God that he would deliver you. But the king's a wicked man, has no faith in God. And so to help him, Isaiah tells King Ahaz, ask God for a sign. Ahaz wants nothing to do with that. And Isaiah sighs and he says, you're wearying to God. King Ahaz, God is getting quite tired of your attitude. No sign will be given to you, and yet God will spare this city, but he will reject you. And Isaiah turns away from the king, and he says, Ah, but God is going to use this as an example to the world. A great sign will be given the entire human race that God wants to save them from their sins. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is, when a virgin gives birth to a son, it will be God's sign that he is among us to save us from our sins. Since a virgin giving birth to a son is impossible, so this will be God's sign that he will also do the impossible and save all who put their trust in him. The Advent season is a very special time of year, but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. While this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled, An Advent Celebration. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His will in our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
I've said that I wanted to point out five visions of the Messiah from Isaiah, and the first one is the well-known passage of Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now let's move forward to Isaiah 9 for our second vision, and it's the very familiar words of verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, as before, let's give the context. Isaiah has been denouncing the sins of Judah. Yeah, God will save the nation from the two kings that threatened to attack during the days of King Ahaz. But still, in spite of God's salvation from their enemies, the nation is carrying on in their wicked ways. And so says God, a new threat is rising. A new empire is coming to the scene, the Assyrian Empire. And this news had led to a state of gloom. Indeed, it will become so severe, Isaiah says, that they will look to the earth and behold death and darkness. And then as we have already noticed in Isaiah, even though he's a realist, he's not a pessimist. He knows that the Lord saves. And so chapter 9 begins by speaking about an event that's going to come in the future. There's coming a day, says Isaiah, when there'll be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. And then Isaiah does something that often marks his writings. But if we're not on to it, Isaiah's going to sound confusing. You see, Isaiah, when speaking about something that's going to happen in the future, often will speak of it using the past tense. So why does he do that? It seems confusing. But Isaiah is doing it for a reason. See, he wants to give the impression that when God promises something, something that's going to happen in the future, God's future promises are as secure as if they had already occurred in the past. Or to put it another way, God's future promises are as certain as yesterday's news. And so says Isaiah of the people of Judah who are living in such gloom. You know, the world's getting worse. I don't know where everything's going. To you, Isaiah has a promise. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They've already seen it. Of course, in one sense, they haven't seen it. Things are still very gloomy. But if you believed in God's promises, which are sure, then the light has already dawned in your heart. Well, what's the ray of hope in this oppressively dark world? And Isaiah answers, for us, a child is born. Well, again, in Isaiah's day, no such child had been born. I mean, no child was born of a virgin. But remember, he speaks of future events, either in the past tense or as if it happened right now. It did happen right now, says Isaiah, because God just announced it to me. Indeed, the son that is given, and here he switches to the future tense, the government shall be on his shoulders. That is, the child is born, and immediately the government isn't immediately on his shoulder, but says Isaiah, one day it's going to be. The coming of the Messiah will be assigned to the world born of a virgin, so you won't be able to mistake who he is. The minute that happens, God is among us. And once that happens, know that this child has a destiny of the increase of his government, that is, of the extent of his government's borders of authority. There will be no end. He governs the universe, never mind just the realms of men. And furthermore, Isaiah then tells us the identity of the child who is destined to rule. He says his name is Wonderful Counselor, the one whose wise plans are overwhelming. His name is Mighty God, that is, he's the God who has come to dwell among us. 
His name is not Everlasting Father, but I think Father of Eternity. Eternity is in his hands. And then Prince of Peace, because once he begins to reign, all wars and human conflict are going to cease. And that's the promise. So let's move to Isaiah's third vision of the Messiah. It's found in Isaiah chapter 11. And the chapter begins by saying, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now, those of us who live, you know, where there are magnificent forests, you'll know the image of which Isaiah speaks. Every once in a while, we come upon a tree that has fallen, or perhaps a tree that's been logged, and all that remains is a stump. The tree's life appears to have ended. But then from that stump, we see a shoot growing forth. And that's the image, but what does it mean? Well, the stump, says Isaiah, is the stump of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. And David was promised that from his lineage and from his throne would come the long-expected Messiah, the one that Isaiah has been describing. And so, says Isaiah, the kingdom of David is going to fall just like a tree in the forest. It's going to come crashing down, and the kingly line will appear to have come to an end. And we know from history that's precisely what happened. In 586 BC, the Babylonians defeated Jerusalem and they captured King Zedekiah. They slaughtered his sons in front of him and that was the last thing Zedekiah ever saw because right after that, they put out his eyes. Then they imprisoned him in Babylon until he died. The tree, the kingdom of David, came crashing down to the forest floor. But when the Messiah comes, says Isaiah, it will seem like a shoot coming out of the stump of that old tree. Indeed, that's what Jesus is. He's the sudden appearance of Israel's king after the kingdom had been destroyed. That's the third vision that Isaiah saw of the Messiah. Now the fourth, and that takes us to chapters 52 and 53. You know, this is the song of the servant of the Lord. And at first, in earlier chapters of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord seems to be used to describe Israel. But by the time we get to chapters 52 and 53, it's clear that the servant of the Lord refers to but one man. Indeed, a little thought tells us that the servant of the Lord must be the very same person as the Messiah that Isaiah mentioned earlier. But here we're shocked to find something that doesn't seem possible. That's because Isaiah 52 verse 14 says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Remember Isaiah's tendency to speak of future events in the past tense. His appearance, that is, the appearance of the Messiah, will be so marred beyond human semblance. Well, what's going to happen? We'll move forward to Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What? How could that be true of one who is called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God? and one who is to have a kingdom that would never end. And by the way, that's why to this very day, both in Judaism and in liberal Christianity, there is a refusal to acknowledge that the suffering servant is the same one as the great Messiah of the earlier chapters. But he is. And at the same point, and Isaiah doesn't tell us when, but at some point, the servant of God, the Messiah, will be a man of sorrows and the most despised man the earth has ever seen. And why would that happen? And Isaiah answers in verses 4 to 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is, we were so lost, we needed a Savior. And this one would be crushed by God himself as a substitute for us. I know we've heard it before, but if you're hearing Isaiah say this for the first time, wouldn't that be shocking? Is he, the great Messiah, going to be crushed by his Father? Yes, he will. For our sins, the Lord would lay our iniquity on him. And Isaiah still not done. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is, after his suffering and death, says Isaiah, he will prolong his days. Isaiah sees the resurrection occurring. I've given four visions of the Messiah from Isaiah. I'm going to give the last one. And this takes us to the last two chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah 65 verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Then to verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. See, in the end, God will make all things new. The Messiah will indeed reign, and then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That's Isaiah's vision of the Messiah. From his birth to his everlasting reign, it's his future and the earth's future. And that's the story of Christmas. Thanks so much, John. You know, I was thinking there's a real breadth of meaning in the Christmas story, and and we really do it a disservice if the entire story isn't considered. Yeah, you know, I... Early on in my ministry, Ben, I, I used to always think, I mean, how do you spend all this time speaking about Christmas when there are only just a few short passages about it? But when you think about the whole Christmas story holistically from the entire scripture, you know, at that point in time, we immediately see that it is so rich in meaning that I don't think that we're going to be able to plumb the the full nature of that throughout this lifetime. So uh, I would just commend people to read the First Testament with an active and keen mind and discover all that God has for us. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our final message in the series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada, wishing you all the joy, hope, and wonder of the season. While the trees go up, lights are hung, and the house smells of delicious baked goods, many of us find ourselves celebrating apart from our families this year. This Christmas season may look and even feel different, but nothing can diminish the message of hope that Christ brings. When darkness was deepest, God sent a Savior. The coming of Jesus was and is the arrival of ultimate hope in a world that has lost its hope. That is the greatest message of good news and great joy to all people. It's why we can genuinely say Merry Christmas. We're so thankful for our Back to the Bible Canada family. Your partnership makes this ministry possible. To support these Bible teaching efforts this month, 
please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.